I have three little boys, um, under three under five, which is um, amazing and exhausting, and everything in between. Uh, you might, you'll probably see them running around with donuts in their mouths after the service. Um, but as a parent, like many of you here, I guess would know as well. But as a parent, it's uh, it's really interesting when you begin to see yourself in your children. Um, our eldest, Reuben, he's been going through this stage recently where. Um, if he's doing something and it goes a little bit wrong, he just like can't handle it. And so he'll just like rip it up and throw it away and just get so frustrated. And um, the other day he was uh, working on a masterpiece and, um, and uh, one little thing went wrong. Honestly, it was a tiny little thing. And, um, and he just got so frustrated, threw the thing away and, um, and just stormed off in a massive grump. And I, I was like, what on earth is going on? Like, what a crazy way to read, what a bad way to read, what's he, what's he, where's he learned that? Like, whose example is he following? <laughs> and then my wife, Jiz, Lizzie, um, gently, but I would say quite clearly, um, communicated exactly where she felt he picked up that sort of behavior. And she reminded me of the emotional roller coasters I go on every time I come to try and do DIY. Um, I don't know whether anyone else has this, but um, I just hate DIY. It just never, ever goes right. It's my least Christian moment, honestly. Uh, I just end up having, it's the only time you'll catch me giving home truths to some inanimate object, you know, like a wall or whatever it is that's gone wrong. Um, And I throw my tools down and I'm like, this is so frustrating. I'm so rubbish at this. I don't know why I try. I hate this. I hate DIY. And um, anyway, so it's this kind of slightly sobering moment as I saw um, myself reflected in the mirror of my child. Um, but, uh, you know, I think I, I sort of, I heard what Lizzie said, and I think I, um, I, saw, I took it fairly well, I thought. Um, but anyway, Lizzie then went away and did some research, and she found this kid's book um, for Reuben um, and me. Um, anyway, <laughs> and, uh, and, she, and it was, she was like, maybe this will help you guys out. And, uh, and anyway, I just want to read it to you this morning. I think the cameras are going to have to zoom in. But it's called The Beautiful Oops. I don't know whether any of you have seen this. It's called The Beautiful Oops. And here we go. By Barney Salzberg. So, it says this. Oops, a torn bit of paper. You can see that? Is just the beginning. There you go. Every spill has lots of potential. Bent paper is something to celebrate. A little drip of paint lets your imagination run wild. A scrap of paper can be fun to play with. A smudge and a smear can make magic appear. You see that? A stain it's going to be tricky to, has potential if you just play with its shape. Holes in your paper, this is a big one for us, holes in the paper, bad news, uh, are worth exploring. You can't see, but it's like a little visual. When you think you've made a mistake, There's a, I don't know whether you can see that, it's like a little flower bed. 
Think of it as an opportunity to make something beautiful. And so the little scrunched up ball becomes the sheepskin. That's good, hey? It's a good little book. So helpful uh, for Reuben. And um, <laughs> so helpful for him. So glad she bought it. Um, but as I, um, as I read this book to him, um, the, on the first time, I actually um, felt quite emotional um, because I felt the Lord sort of whisper to me. Um, I felt the Lord whisper to me, this is exactly what I do. That's exactly what I do. You see, he takes brokenness and he makes something beautiful over and over again. And as I want us, want us to see that this morning, that he takes ruin and he brings restoration. He takes brokenness and he makes something beautiful. He takes hearts that have been silenced by sorrow and sadness and makes them sing again. It's just what he does. It's who he is. It's what he's like. He's a God of restoration. And what I want us to think about and see this morning is that brokenness is never the end of the story. It's never the end of the story. There's always hope. And I think we need to know that more than ever at the moment, don't we? On a large scale, sort of national, cultural level, um, Brexit, economic, political uncertainties just kind of thrown everything into chaos. Things feel and often sound, if you listen to the news, just hopeless. The papers report um, prescriptions for antidepressants have risen dramatically in the last two years, that fears that suicide rates are significantly on the increase, loneliness off the scale. We see huge issues around social media and young people, brokenness everywhere. Brokenness everywhere. We need to know that there's hope as a nation, but also um, personally in our lives, in our families. We often don't have to look very far to find brokenness, sorrow, sadness, mistakes. We need to know that there's hope. I, um, I read the paper, um, the newspaper, nearly every day this week, um, looking for stories of hope for, for today. I was like, oh, I'll be good to have a few stories of hope. And honestly, I didn't find anything. It was just so bleak. Um, even United's resurgence under Ali Gunnar Solskjaer crashed to an end at, at PSG on Tuesday night, sadly. So desperate is the situation. Um, but we need hope desperately. And actually, the Bible has really, really good news because it's where we see over and over and over again um, this idea that brokenness isn't the final word. It tells a story of a God who never abandons, never discards, never gives up. Whenever we make mistakes, a God who specializes in restoration, who runs after the lost causes. Brokenness isn't the final word. In fact, God takes mistakes and he makes something beautiful. God takes mistakes and he makes something beautiful. And I mean mistakes fairly, fairly broadly, whether it's brokenness that result from our mistakes, from others' mistakes, whether it's the result of evil done to us, or done by us, whether it's just the impact on us of an imperfect world, wherever the brokenness stems from, wherever the mistake, the same is true. God takes situations of hopelessness and works them towards hope. And if, like Ben was saying 
uh, tonight we have a baptism service. If you, you should come, but if you come, what you'll hear is story after story after story of God taking brokenness and making something beautiful, of brokenness not being the end of the story. God takes mistakes and he makes something beautiful. It's the beautiful oops of our lives. And we see it throughout the whole Bible, in the big picture, in these small individual stories. And actually, when you read the Bible and you see something like that, it, this is true of the big picture. It's true in individual stories all the way through. What is clear is that it's telling us something about, not just about how God engaged with a particular time or culture, but something that's permanent about his character. It's not to do with how he engaged particularly with a culture, but what's permanent about his character, what's timeless about who he is. And throughout the Bible, we see the same. This is the direction that he moves things. The big, the big picture, the big sort of narrative, um, if you like, is, um, is this, is that in Genesis 1, at the very beginning of the Bible, so like page 1 here, wherever it is, um, we see God makes everything perfect, makes everything new, everything's great. All things made good. But then in Genesis 3, like one page on, sin enters the world and starts to weave its way through into corruption and brokenness. And we see things descending and corruption entering the world. And then the rest of the Bible, from pages 1 and 2, all the way through, all the way through the whole thing, towards Revelation at the very end, is basically a story of how God pursues humanity and seeks to bring about restoration, seeks to bring about hope, seeks to make all things new. And so when we do get to restoration, which is, uh, when we do get to revelation, which is right here at the very end of the Bible, um, the very last book of the Bible, we have God saying, I'm going to, I'll make all things new. You have this picture of him wiping away every tear from every eye, where everything is restored again. And so in the big picture of the Bible, you have this journey from brokenness to beauty, from brokenness to restoration. That's the big picture. That's where God is taking things in the big picture. But we also see the same is true over and over of individual stories that make up the Bible, individual people's stories. And I just want to spend a bit of time this morning just tracing that theme of God taking broken things and making them beautiful. God's heart for restoration. I just want to trace it through three stories from across the Bible timeline. So one at the beginning, one middle, one end. And um, actually, sort of unintentionally, but quite happily, they all begin with J. One is Jesus. We'll get there. Uh, but um, they all begin with J. So let's look firstly at um, Joseph. If you've got your Bible in Genesis, end of Genesis. Um, <clears throat> So the basic story of Joseph is this. Joseph is his father's favorite um, son. Most of you know it because of Andrew Lloyd Webber. Um, but Joseph, his father's favorite, he gets his special coat, and he starts to have all these dreams um, about in which his father and his brothers sort of bow down to him. And he tells his father and his brothers this, which wasn't a great idea. His brothers just really hate him and don't like him, and they decide to um, kill him. But instead, they eventually, they just sell him, um, they, I, you know, as if that's a whole lot better. I guess it's a bit better. Um, they sell him to these, this, uh, this trade person uh, who takes him off to Egypt. And, um, and so he goes to Egypt, and things are looking, at this point, it's pretty bleak, pretty bad, but things go from bad to worse, because he ends up um, unjustly accused of something and being sent to prison, where he spends a number of years. 
So things are pretty bad. At some point later on, Pharaoh, who was the kind of the king of Egypt, he has some dreams and he needs some interpreting. And he hears of this guy, Joseph, in prison, who can do that, who can do it. And so he calls Joseph out and, he, and Joseph tells him his dreams and gives him the interpretation of those dreams. And it's to do with um, a time coming where there'll be seven years of plenty of harvest and there'll be seven years of famine. And Pharaoh's so amazed at this that he actually puts Joseph then in charge of all of um, the preparations. You know, so let's, let's stock stuff up in the seven years of plenty so that they will, will be okay in the seven years of famine. So Joseph does that. And, um, and then when the famine finally hits, you have this incredible moment where Joseph's brothers, from back in the story, who haven't been in it for a long time, his brothers come to Egypt to get food, not knowing, thinking that Joseph would just be, you know, thinking that he'd been killed or whatever. Anyway, they come to, they come to um, Egypt, and there's this moment where they, are bow, they come to get food, and they are bowing before Joseph, not realizing who he is. And, um, and Joseph eventually reveals himself to them, and they're sort of filled with this disbelief and fear, like, oh no, I can't believe it's him, remembering the evil they've done. And then Joseph says this line, it's amazing, it's in Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. There was such brokenness in that family. Nothing about what they did to him was good. It was evil. There's no way around it. It was horrible. And you could look at Joseph in prison, abandoned by his family, guilty, found guilty of a wrong he didn't do, and think, he's got nothing. He is a lost cause. If anyone was a lost cause, Joseph was. Unredeemable, hopeless, broken beyond repair. But in God's economy, nothing ever is. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. It's the beautiful, oops, the brother they threw away becomes the prince who saves their lives. God takes mistakes and he makes something beautiful. I read the other day about um, how the gospel came to South Korea. So South Korea is kind of mainly Christian country uh, today. Um, but um, it began with a Welsh man named Robert Thomas. And he went there with Bibles in Chinese. And he went on a boat and he sailed through along a river. And, um, and he just threw Bibles out as he went onto the shore um, now, some of the locals um, were, you know, were, were concerned and didn't like it, and the ship that he was on was attacked, and he was killed. And it looked like an absolute failure. This is, you know, everything about this is, has gone wrong. This is an absolute failure. But actually, one person picked up one of those Bibles sitting on the riverbank and took it home to their house, and they used it to wallpaper their, the rooms in their house, the room in their house. And began to read it. And others came and began to read it. And people began to respond to what they were reading. And what happened was a church began in the village, in that village, in that house. And the gospel spread through South Korea. Isn't that crazy? Amazing. Brokenness, failure. But it's not the end of the story. It'd be easy, you know, to take that Joseph story and say something like, you know, you might feel like you're in prison, 
But God's going to take you to the palace. If you only hold on to his promise, then we could say there's three Ps here, you know, prison to palace through promise. And if you've ever heard that talk, I'm sorry, I'm making it up. I don't know. I haven't heard. I don't know. Um, but um, I don't think that's what we can do um, with, this, with this story. Just because that's what happened to Joseph, he went from prison to palace, doesn't mean, therefore, that's going to happen to us. It didn't happen in that way for Robert uh, Thomas in South Korea. He lost his life. It doesn't give us a formula. It might not look exactly like that. But what, that, what this story does show us is this. It shows us that God is the sort of God who brings good from bad. He's sovereign. He's the sort of God who does beautiful things, even in brokenness who takes lost causes and does amazing things. Brokenness isn't the end of the story. There's always hope because that's the sort of God he is. God takes mistakes and he makes something beautiful. And he's good at it. He's really good at it. Unlike, um, unlike this act of restoration, God is really good at restoration. I don't know whether anyone saw this picture. I think the slides can come up. So this, is, um, this was in the newspaper. Um, this is a 200-year-old painting it's called the Eke Homo, and, um, and it was hung in a church in, I think, in Spain, and it had been hanging there for a number of years, but in, in recent years, moisture had kind of got to it and had sort of caused it to deteriorate, and I think the next picture shows that, so this is what had happened to the picture. Um, and there was this one 80-year-old local lady who, um, who just was disappointed at what had happened, and she decided to, um, to sneak in and do a bit of her own restoration. So she got her paintbrushes and her paints, and she snuck into the church when no one was looking, and she did her restoration. <laughs> I think there's one more that just shows the... To the artistic world's absolute horror, they could not believe it. It was in the paper. This is shocking. How could this even happen? But, you know, I think sometimes when we think about God restoring us or God sort of... Helping, we sort of think, oh, he's going to, it's a bit like that. It's a bit like he's going to patch us up. It's a bit second rate, you know. Um, he's just going to patch us up. But he's not an amateur artist. He's the God who made everything from nothing. The God who designed the sunset, who painted the skies, who dreamt up the stars. When God works restoration, it's by no means second rate. He's done his 10,000 hours or whatever it is you have to do to become an expert. Um, you know, Joseph goes from brother, uh, from abandoned brother and prisoner to prince and provider and saves the entire region. Robert Thomas, that, the guy who went to Korea, is the reason the gospel reached an entire nation. God is good at taking lost causes, hopeless situations, and doing amazing things. Maybe you've heard of St. Augustine, one of the great theologians um, of the church. And, uh, you know, most people would say, great if not greatest theologian the church has ever had. And he began as a drunk and a womanizer. He actually prays in one place of his confessions, God grant me chastity, but not yet. <laughs> God took... His brokenness worked restoration, and the Western church was never the same. Or John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, you know, the most well-known, loved hymn, 
started as a slave trader and a drunk, but God took his brokenness, worked restoration, and we've been singing the song for centuries since. It's not second-rate, but beautiful. It reminds me a bit of, you know, is it um, Kintsugi, this Japanese artwork, where they take broken pottery and they fix it, they repair it with gold so that the broken items actually become more beautiful after the restoration. It's not second-rate. And with Joseph, we see a remarkable story of God doing a remarkable thing, taking brokenness and making something beautiful. So that's at the sort of start of the Bible. If we go sort of midway through to Jeremiah, he's, um, Jeremiah was a prophet around 600 or so years before Jesus, and he was someone who spoke uh, God's words to Israel. And we read in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11 this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. Now, it's, it's a familiar verse, isn't it, to many of us? Like you may have it on like a fridge magnet or on the back of your car, or you may have had it prayed over you or something. It's a familiar verse, but before we just grab that verse for ourselves, which I think is probably our tendency, it's easy to do, we have to ask a really key question about it. Who is the you in the passage? For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Who is the you in the passage? And in the first instance, actually, it's not you or I. Um, The you that Jeremiah was speaking to were the people of Israel nearly... Um, 3,000 years ago, and the situation they were in was awful. In fact, the verse just before that one, is, uh, which you don't find on fridge magnets or bumper stickers, says, you're going to go into captivity for 70 years. It's just not such a nice verse, I think. Um, but you see, Israel found themselves at this point caught between two superpowers, between Egypt on the one hand and the growing power of Babylon on the other. And these two military superpowers of the day jostled for position, and Israel was really a casualty. Eventually, Babylon invaded Israel. They deported a large number of the people, including the king, and they took them to Babylon. It was known as the exile, geographically removed from their home, politically and economically, culturally subject to Babylon. And Jeremiah sort of warned the people about this. He said, you know, this is, if don't keep abandoning God because I, I, this is what's coming. But imagine the fear and the turmoil, estranged from God, from your family, culture, land, slaves in an unknown place. This was the situation that Israel were in. And this is the you in the passage. And so God says to that Israel, I know the plans I have for you, Israel, in exile, without any hope. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Even though you've abandoned me, even though you didn't listen to my warnings, even though I've tried and tried again and again to get through to you, even though the situation you were in seems hopeless and broken, I can't stop being about restoration. In my heart, I have plans for you, for your good. And in the following chapters, Jeremiah, in Jeremiah, they're full of um, hope. And eventually the people do return to their land. They are restored to their land. They rebuild the temple. They rebuild the cities that, have been, that, were, that were broken down and seized. They are restored. And it's this kind of amazing, um, amazing thing that they do come back. But whilst that verse isn't firstly written to us, There's a massive amount of encouragement there for us because it shows us, again, an incredibly important thing. It shows us what sort of God 
he is, what he's like. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he's the sort of God who loves to prosper, who loves to give hope, who takes brokenness and makes it beautiful, and with whom there's always hope, no matter how bleak or how dire the situation. And I think that verse becomes even more powerful for us when we see it's setting in that moment, how bleak their situation was, and then how incredible the promise and hope that God brought. God takes mistakes, and he makes something beautiful. Isaiah, another prophet in the Old Testament, writing same time as Jeremiah, more or less, and to the same situation, he uses these words. He says, one day God is going to give you a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of despair. Love that that language, beauty for ashes. Beauty for ashes. He's a God who can't stop being about restoration. It's who he is. Back in November, uh, we let, I went to lead some worship with a band here at an event for Open Doors. We actually hosted them this week, which was brilliant. They, um, they work with the persecuted church all over the world. And um, we heard story after story of brokenness where there was brokenness, but God was doing stuff, uh, doing amazing things. And uh, one story was of two young men in their 20s in India, and they were both Christians, and they were arrested for talking to people about Jesus. And they were physically mistreated, thrown into prison. I mean, can you imagine, um, just suddenly, removed from loved ones, removed from family, thrown into prison, where actually the sort of the danger escalated for you. Pretty bleak, pretty hopeless. So their family and friends begin to engage in the legal system, trying to get to secure their release, and they spend a number of months trying to do this, and eventually they secure the option of their release. And they go to the two young men, and they say, look, we'll have you out soon, We've managed to secure your release. We'll have you out soon. And the two young men reply, you need to delay that that release as long as you possibly can. You need to to delay it. And obviously the guy's like, what what are you talking about? What are you talking about? And they say, well, when we got in here, we started talking to people about Jesus. And some of the men began to respond. And now we have over 200 people in here who are following Jesus. We've got a church. They need us. Isn't that worth a glass? It's amazing. Because God takes hopeless situations and he works. Because that's what he's like. I read another story um, of a lady called Virginia Proden. Um, She was in communist Romania where Christianity was forbidden. and it It would result in beatings and imprisonment and even death. And she was a lawyer and she met some Christians and she noticed the peace about them. And eventually, uh, she found herself in church giving her life to Jesus. And she decided to go about defending Christians legally as best as she could. And there were death threats that followed for her, for her family. She was pushed at one point into moving traffic. She was beaten by um, secret police. But she carried on. And then one day in her office, um, she's in her office, and her secretary said, oh, there's a man here to see you about a case. So she, she invites the man into her office, at which point he pulls out a gun and he puts it right in her face and he says, you should have listened to the warnings. I'm here to kill you. I mean, can you imagine the, the fear, the thoughts going through your head of family that you may never see again, children. Just the darkest moment in her life. But in that moment, um, 
she spoke to the man holding the gun. And with a gun in her face, she recited John 3.16. Many of you know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And she tells how his eyes began to soften and the gun began to lower as she continued to share the gospel with him. Gun in her face. And she writes this. <laughs> and with that, my killer walked away saved. A brother in Christ. He went on to enroll in seminary and we've kept in touch ever since. Bleak, dark, hopeless. But God is the kind of God who takes brokenness and turns it into something beautiful. He takes an assassination and turns it into a conversion. It's just what he's like. (laughs) And it doesn't mean that everything will always work out the way we want it to, but it does mean that no matter what, we have hope to cling to. Because God takes mistakes and he makes something beautiful. The final J is Jesus. Uh, So if you turn sort of more towards the back of your Bibles, a bit further on, New Testament, Jesus. Both Isaiah and Jeremiah, who the prophets have mentioned earlier, they both talk about this time when Israel will be restored to the the land that they've been removed from. uh, But they also talk about a restoration that's beyond that, that's going to, at one point, someone will come and and bring restoration, but it's going to be bigger than that. It's going to be to do with our souls. It's going to be to do with our relationship with God. And Jesus actually quotes that passage that I mentioned, the beauty flashes one. He uses that passage when he starts his ministry, just slightly earlier on in that chapter. And he says, and he says um, the spirit of the Lord is on me. He's anointed me to bring good news. And he quotes that whole passage. And basically what he's saying is, what those guys were prophesying about, I'm that guy. The one that they were pointing to, I'm him. That's me. I'm him. I've come to do that. I'm, that, I'm bringing that, that, um, the, uh, the hope that they talk about. I'm bringing it. Paul, uh, who's a leader in the early church, and he wrote a bunch of letters to churches, and he writes to one of the churches about Jesus, and he says this, um, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And what he means is that um, what Jesus is like, God is like what Jesus is like, basically. When we see what Jesus is like, we see what God is like. And um, so what do we see when Jesus walks around and is on earth? What do we see? What is he like? Well, we see that he goes around healing people, helping people, restoring sight, forgiving people, freeing from oppression, taking people's brokenness and bringing restoration over and over and over to the point where this week I was like, it's kind of almost like the only thing he does. Like he just goes about like bringing restoration, bringing healing, bringing help, bringing wholeness. It's just what he was like. And if looking at Jesus teaches us about God, which is what Paul is saying, then that's an amazing thing. That's where we see most clearly this is the sort of God he is. This is what he's like. But I want to end just by focusing for a moment on the cross, which is kind of the biggest bit in the Gospels um, about, G- about Jesus. It's called the Passion. It's kind of the, it takes up the most space. Um, so Jesus, after three years ministering with compassion and care, knowing that he's about to be killed, he goes to this garden to pray. And then soldiers arrive to arrest him. He's betrayed with a kiss, taken, beaten, mocked, spit on, stripped naked, whipped, a crown of thorns placed on his head, and he's then nailed to a cross and hung on it until he no longer had the strength to pull himself up to take a breath, and he dies. 
His body is then pierced with the spear, taken down, buried in a tomb. The darkest day in history as we sometimes see. This was brokenness, sin, evil, hopelessness at its worst. The disciples flee in fear and dismay, all their hopes and expectations crushed. It's that moment in Narnia, if you've seen it, where Aslan is on the stone table and he's killed. And it's, for all the world, it looks like darkness has won, like evil has triumphed. I wonder whether you've seen this image, this picture, this painting. It's called Checkmate, um, and it's of a man playing chess with the devil. And the devil has won. It's Checkmate. And there was this story of a chess champion who visited the gallery where this was hung. And he, he was walking around the gallery, so looking at the different artwork with a friend. And he stopped in front of this painting and, uh, and just stared. He stared and he stared, and his friend carried on. And he stared and he stared, reading the game, following the game looking at the moves. And then suddenly, his eyes grew wide and his chest began to pump because he saw something as he began to mouth the words in disbelief. The king still has one more move. The king still has one more move. And he gets louder and louder and more excited. The king still has One more move. It looks like it's checkmate, but it's not. The king has one more move. Beaten, hung on a cross, killed, buried in a tomb. It looks for all the world like checkmate, like darkness had triumphed, but the king still had one more move. And we read in the gospel account, the stone being rolled away, hundreds of people seeing Jesus risen from the dead, alive. In fact, um, Paul, who I mentioned earlier, he writes to that same church, Colossians, he says this, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The cross, that moment of defeat and ultimate brokenness, becomes the moment where God lands the greatest victory, where he deals with our sin and he overcomes death. Christus victor is the kind of theological term for it, At the cross, we see the victory of God right at the center of the most extreme brokenness. It's the beautiful ups. The greatest loss, the darkest moment, becomes the most profound victory and the brightest hope for the world. Whatever we're in, however dark, however broken, there's always hope. The king has one more move. And it doesn't mean, therefore, that everything's going to work out how we want it to. It doesn't mean follow Jesus and get everything you ever want. It's not a recipe. It's not a formula. It doesn't mean we won't go through hard things or bad things. You know, Lizzie and I, um, we've experienced enough pain and brokenness in the last three years to know that that's not what it means. And to feel this sort of, you know, if somebody says to you, oh, don't worry, because God's going to work it for good. And the pain, you know, the sort of, we know what that feels like. I'm not talking about silver linings to painful situations here. That's not what it promises. That's not what it means. But I just want to show you this morning and sort of just say, just sort of put in front of you this, that over and over again throughout the Bible, it's, you can't really get away from it. God's heart is always towards restoration. 
always towards hope and healing. It's just his direction of travel until one day he makes all things new and all brokenness comes to an end. God takes mistakes and he makes something beautiful. We see it in the big narrative from Genesis to Revelation. We see it in Joseph, Jeremiah, and Jesus, and countless other stories in the New Testament. We see it, we'll hear it in the baptism stories tonight. You'll read it in every, every story in that Changing Lives booklet if you grab hold of that. It's just who he is. It's just what he's like. When everything seems lost, if we feel inadequate, unusable, broken, then hear this this morning. The king has one more move. There's always hope because God takes mistakes and he makes something beautiful. It's the beautiful, oops.